AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. So Matt, uh, building off the memcached issue, there's a new thing that came up with etcd, right? Uh, you have a story on that? Yeah, so these not quite a database kind of databases like memcached or MongoDB. Uh, people are apparently exposing them to the internet without any concern for the actual security. SCD is kind of interesting. I did some research into it. It's, it's like a, a distributed database specific to core OS. And earlier versions of this software have absolutely no uh, access control. So if you were to go and make a, a request to the API endpoint for this thing, you could just ask it what's in the database and you get it. It's another example of what we keep finding is these new databases, new technologies that assume that if you're accessing it, you should have access, which fundamentally is a poor assumption. So apparently this researcher Giovanni Calazzo, uh, he did some research when he found out that this was the way that etcd is set up. He went and you know checked Shodan because that's the first thing you do. Hey, what's out there? And apparently Shodan has scanned for these, and he was able to find around 9,000 different records that were marked password, and then a smattering of them that were AWS tokens, and then other various credentials across all these different machines that he was scanning. Obviously, this is something that people, if you're uh, managing CoreOS, you know, etcd on any of your machines, you should definitely look into it uh, and update to the latest version, which will add that support for. Uh, access control. If you haven't updated an etcd database and it's exposed, you're potentially in a, in a bad spot here. So the issue is that the older version do doesn't, because it, it doesn't even have any authentication, right? Nothing. You, yeah. As long as you can hit that interface, that API interface, you'll get the data. Yeah. Which is a problem. You know? I mean, I guess the idea is, you know, is the function of these databases to have anything valuable, right? Well, that's the thing. I mean, there may be some specifically secure databases out there, but for most developers, they think, well, it's a database. I can put what I want in the database, I can get it back, and they won't give any consideration to, you know, can anybody else get this data? Hopefully developers will be figuring out soon, if you're going to come up with something like this, build security in while you're developing it. Have your first version come out with access control, because I guarantee you someone's going to stick it on the internet without realizing what they've done. It's the yes. same thing we're seeing with these S3 buckets and mm -hmm. these public clouds. It's you know some level of security and thought has to go into using public-facing repositories. Absolutely, so. sure. I think it's it seems like another one of these same old lesson, same old story, and yet every week there seems to be another one. So yeah, I mean this one seems a little different than that. Etcd is a little bit more sort of developery. It's not you you doubt if somebody's corporate repository, you know, it's probably more, you know, skunk works kind of stuff, right? It's possible. I mean, from what I understand, um, CoreOS and Kubernetes are all part of this, this ecosystem. Right. So there are corporate uses for it, you know, but I, I imagine it's a, it's, I would, yeah, no, it's, still a it's I'm problem. less familiar with it, so I would yeah. th tend to think it's a newer technology. Yeah, I might be wrong. The thing, when I saw this story, I said, I don't even know what this is. This was a new one to me. <laughs> Well, just think a few, you know, maybe a few years ago, a lot of folks were, were brand new to the idea of MongoDB, too. Right. I mean, it's yeah. as new technologies come onto the scene, it's, it's, that's when people are paying attention to them. That's, that's developers, and that's also criminals, yeah. So, yeah. It's, you know, it does point out how valuable a tool Shodan is for finding stuff like this. You know, they've, oh, they've yeah. scanned for this. They've, they'll show you individual strings that you can grab. It's, 
you know, it's kind of like what we can, sh you know, a glimmer of what we can show with internet weather, but, you know, really valuable insight into what's exposed. Yeah, it's, a, it's a double edged sword. I appreciate it definitely from a defender standpoint because it lets you see where the problems are so you can address them more quickly. Now in a, a large corporation you may have your own scanning efforts, you might have something that periodically scans, but to have Shodan, I don't want to say check your work, but also providing their own unique perspective that you may not quite get is also valuable. The lesson here really is be careful about what tools you're selecting. You know, if you are using the newest, earliest version, keep it sort of local and, and don't expose that out where you know, anybody can get to it. Some people will chase after the brand new shiny object, the new technology that someone promises will solve all of their problems. Just be aware that you may be introducing different problems from a security standpoint. John, it's been a big week of news for Facebook, but one particularly interesting facet seems to be that the Facebook app was actually collecting information about call detail logs. Can you tell me a little more about that? The Facebook app was uh, user identified last week that, that their call records were actually being stored uh, and being sent over to Facebook. It's a lot of information that you think of as somewhat sensitive, somewhat personal. So Facebook's defense is that this was an opt-in, that users would have to agree that their data was going to be used by the application. As you opt into these, this feature, it would copy this stuff up there. And, and the intent was is that if you needed to make a, you know, like Matt or Joe or whomever, if I needed to get a hold of you, I could find you very easily using the Facebook or the Facebook Messenger application. In this case, you can turn it off. It's not something you, you, know, you have to be concerned about. But it is one of those things that, you know, we always say, you know, read your terms of service, read your end user license agreement, think about what you're opting into, what, you know, and, and people just don't do that. It sounds like the purpose, the stated purpose of the feature is to allow you to get a hold of people, which only really requires access to your contact list, but not access to who you're calling, when and for how long. So why was this data being captured? I think it's a little, little, yeah, a little, little sketchy on all the content, and and it perhaps might just be that you know from a permissions perspective, you you get it all or none. <laughs> Interesting. I know with Facebook kind of towing the line with privacy in a lot of different areas. You know, this is I think this is a case where one user started to ask some questions. Right? Why is this yeah. data out there? How is it being captured? And then from there, the kind of PR you know, web gets to other people thinking about really what is Facebook doing with my data? What are these social media sites? Are they harvesting my data or are they providing me, you know, functionality? You have to be really careful. Make sure what you're opting into is something that benefits you more than the potential loss of the data that you're sharing would be. You know, we, we've talked before, the free flashlight apps, and you say, why does it need permission to contact me, you know, get my contacts and, you know, do a, send an SMS message. It may not necessarily be malicious, but they're going to harvest that data for, for a purpose, whether it be marketing or, or, you know, or some other third, you know, third product. I think that Facebook, even if its business model is to collect information to allow people to better target advertising towards you, if that is their, their business model, it's it's, those, it seems like they've still overstepped some bounds here in the features they promised versus the things they actually did. Right. It's one of those where they're at least stating that this allows you some level of functionality. It allows you to easily look up your contacts, maybe to 
prioritized by who you message the most. Maybe the people you message the most, those pop to the top of your list. You know, things that you may, that may seem helpful, but you know, we know what's behind the scenes is harvesting of data, you know, probably anonymizing that data and selling it. However, yeah. you know, what can be done with all that comes with a, a repository like Facebook harvesting all your text sure, messages. Sure, but you also said that, that we know. And when you say we, I'm not sure which, who you were talking about because maybe it's, it's the people who are tech savvy and understand what it takes to implement those features. But again, that's not Facebook's target audience. It's, it's everybody. It's the right. people who don't have technical knowledge who, for whatever reason, are expected to understand that the way that we do, the way that Facebook does something requires access to this set of data or this other set of data. Yeah. And it's all getting better. I'm a fairly active Facebook user and I get a quiz, you know, somebody shares a quiz with me. And Facebook will tell me, hey, this, this needs access to your Facebook contacts. Whoa, stop, right? <laughs> why, why does a quiz need access to this? Why does, you know, and that's where you start to, I think the key here is, is let's educate, you know, people to, to think about what they're giving up and, and, and maybe prompt them a little bit more often. Even though it's annoying, it educates them. Personally, I would advise that if people want to use an application that wants access to this information, be aware of what the possible uses are and not just the stated uses. Yeah, in general, you know, when you have this choice to opt in or opt out of sharing your data, you have to really think about that. You know, what does this mean? What level of my personal data am I sharing? Even when you're sharing what you feel like is innocuous information, there are ways that that can be used against you. Uh, John, do we have the famous Markley quiz this week? We do, and it's a fairly simple, simple question and answer. I, in the back of my head, I got the theme song, you know, that says, you know, which of these doesn't belong. So I'm going to read you, read you a question, read you four answers, and you, and you guys tell me which one doesn't fit with the other ones. Which one of the following is not a real cryptography library? You know, I think cryptography libraries, op OpenSSL, CryptoLocker, Bouncy Castle, and GNU TLS. Oh, it's, it's um, CryptoLocker, because that one's malware. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds right. Okay, good. I'm glad you, your memories are good, so you remember CryptoLocker. The rest of them are actually legitimate crypto, cryptography libraries. OpenSSF, new TLS. Um, I, I think I might trip you up with Bouncy Castle, because not everyone has heard of Bouncy Castle. Isn't that a Java crypto library? Correct. All yep, right. That's exactly See, you guys are sharp today. <laughs> Thanks, John. Joe, I hear that you have a story uh, relating to GitHub this week. Yeah, I actually have some good news, which I think is a, is a change of pace for us. So uh, GitHub started scanning public repositories for their Ruby and JavaScript code. And they announced this week that they scanned 500,000 public repositories and found 4 million vulnerabilities. Alerting users and admins to these vulnerable libraries is is being noticed. You know, people are updating, people are within, I think, seven days and, and 15 days, they have stats at different levels. They're seeing that, you know, vulnerable libraries are being updated, so you know, it's working. So the, the vulnerabilities that it's scanning for, just so I understand it, I, my impression was that they were looking for specifically outdated and known vulnerable versions of libraries that people in GitHub were importing. Right. And that's the quickest way to find vulnerabilities because they know for a fact you're using this known bad code. They don't even have to look at the code that's being used and say, this version of the library is bad, 
you need to fix it. Is right. that right? Which is, yep, that is right. And which, you know, for GitHub, that is, you know, pretty much the, the nuts and bolts of what you're doing in GitHub. You're importing your repositories and then you're building your, you know, your source from there. So the, the piece on this said that uh, GitHub is planning to build this out more and add more of these scanning features where, you know, more languages and more places within the process, you know, they're going to add some more uh, scanning capabilities. Yeah, do you think, Joe, that there's going to be an opportunity here that even when you upload the code, it checks it as you upload it, so it doesn't yeah. even get on the repository? There's more, there's more opportunities to scan as you check in code, as you import yeah. code, as you add to existing trees, and there's good tools out there. It's just the onus on every individual software engineer to use those scanning tools is a lot more difficult than if they're being done in the public repository. And if they're doing it on your behalf, rather than, you know, the developer having to do it themselves, it, it may even solve, you know, or save some time, you know, that you're, 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 you know, the developer, you can think, okay, at least I'm being protected from maybe some simple mistakes. Right. And that's what I wanted to make a point is that, you know, it's great that they're doing this. Don't get me wrong. And then the number of bugs that they're, they're fixing is excellent. Um, but no one should, should mistake this for if I upload my code to GitHub, all of my bugs will be found for me. While this is a good step in the right direction, this is not the same as running your code against a code scanner to find actual vulnerabilities in you know, things like buffer overflows or cross-site scripting, things that a code scanner would do. This is finding purely old versions of libraries. You still need to scan your code if you're going to put it into production to make sure there aren't vulnerabilities in it. You know, from a management perspective, I think this is a good example of attacking a problem at a high level you know, address the security flaw high enough that anybody who gets it lower is, is taking a secure product. You know, make the security changes high enough that anybody who reuses that product is getting something that's already been security checked to some degree. Let's talk internet weather. So we got the top 10 most probe ports. A lot of it looks pretty similar, but we'll get there. Uh, port 23 TCP is Telnet. That's been the king for forever. Below that is port 22 TCP, that's SSH, also been in the top for forever. 1433 is MS SQL. And number four, 8291 TCP coming out of nowhere. It's incredible. We'll definitely talk about it. Uh, port 445 TCP is SMB. 21 TCP, FTP. 8545, Ethereum GF. 3389, remote desktop protocol. 80 TCP and 1911 are web and tritium AX, I think. That being said, that's the most probe ports. The most sources probing, 8291 in second place. What's going on? There is a brand new port on the scene and it came out of nowhere in the last 48 hours as of this taping. This appears to be a vulnerability in Microtik routers that has been around for a little while, but only now are we seeing significant scanning and boy is it significant. So most of the ports we've seen here before, I'm gonna skip and just name this, the ones that are a little bit different. 81 TCP is an alternate web port and 5555 I believe is Android ADB. And the rest are pretty common sort of stuff. But let's get to this. 8291, Microtik Winbox service. Coming out of nowhere, as you can see, scan sources suddenly peak around the midway through the 24th. So as of this week, this is brand new. So what's Microtik? They, they make routers. Okay. Um, this is a port that's characteristic of these routers. This Winbox is a, a management port. It turns out there's a vulnerability in these things, but it's not in Winbox. 
This is just a quick way to identify mm. which of these boxes. If this port is there, you found the right thing. It's a lot easier to do this than it is to say, try 80 and then try and parse the results from 80 and figure out what you're looking at. Um, so there is an exploit. So they're calling it Chimay Red. I guess whoever came up with this was a beer fan. Yeah, right. um, but the vulnerability is on port 80. Um, turns out that what people were saying is the malware that's being dropped in this campaign is the Hajime botnet. And once it's on there, it's scanning again. So they've added this to their repertoire. This is one of several different vulnerabilities they seem to be pushing. Did anything end up happening in terms of patching or? Yes, this vulnerability has been patched. If you patch, not only will it patch, according to Microtech, it will clean this up for you. Oh, okay. So if you've got these devices, now is a great time to patch yeah. because this thing is spreading kind of like a worm across the network. So definitely pay attention to it. You know, this one really jumped out of nowhere and I think we'll probably be hearing more about the, the vulnerability there and, and the changes in the Hajime botnet that have gone in to take advantage of that. So port 23 TCP telnet has actually seen a spike in the last uh, day or so, but it still continues to be a, a significant amount of scanning consistently. Um, I don't expect that to stop anytime soon. Port 8545 TCP, which is Ethereum, uh, turns out that this GF was exposing RPC to the internet and people could just sort of stroll in and grab your money. Mm. So people were doing that. Uh, we did see a spike back here, I'm gonna say the 21st, and it's from one major source in the Netherlands. But there's also about 50 sources in China that are consistently contributing to the scanning as well. So we're keeping an eye on this one. Okay. Uh, SMB, I like to revisit it every time I can. Yeah. This is 365 days, mostly to show the trend. Uh, there's actually, it, it appears, maybe it's just not the, the peak of the week yet, but it appears that it's actually trending down slightly mm. at this point. But you can see the long history of it. Um, and yeah, this was our spike back when WannaCry happened. And then eventually over time, it's been growing. Um, but yeah, this one's still a contender. Oh yeah. Uh, and 5555 TCP is this Android ADB port. I just wanted to keep an eye on it because a couple shows ago I had reported on it. And we haven't really seen, we've seen spikes here and there, but overall it appears to be trending downwards. Okay. Uh, and this is scanned flows, not scanned sources. It seems like there's a, a small number of sources involved scanning on this. And one more that I thought was kind of an interesting grab bag one, which I don't fully understand yet, is this port 50802. And it seems there's been sporadic scanning from a single source in the Netherlands, but significant number of scan flows per hour um, coming up around 50, 50 million, I want to say. Uh, single source, though. That's, single source. Somebody's really hammering on it, yeah. yeah. We're not really sure what vulnerability they're chasing, but it seems to be one source. And that's particularly interesting. There's vulnerability. Only one person knows about it. Oh, yeah. Or at least one. That's it's pretty. All, it's all going through one source. Yeah, that's pretty suspicious, right? If yeah. only one guy knows about it, maybe it's something no one else knows about. Yeah. It's possible. So I'd like to keep an eye on that one, yeah. too. And that's the internet weather. Oh, thanks, Matt. Very interesting. So, Matt, if I was at my local library and I was trying to find a good book on hacking, what do you recommend? Well, I think your local library probably isn't as, as um, well-stocked with hacking books uh. as my personal library. Um, but this one, I think, is a great starter book. This is No Tech Hacking by Johnny Long. Uh, it actually came out in 2008. Um, and I remember when I first started my career, this was at the top of my list. And it's only until this year that I found the time to sit down and read it. And I like it with the caveat that I think if I read it at the very beginning of my career, I'd be much more excited about its content. Mm -hmm. And that's not to diss anything inside the cover, but I feel like the stuff that's in there is better suited for a beginner level. And the, the thrust of the book is really talking about 
all the stuff that you can do with a very minimal amount of technical knowledge that is valuable in offensive security. So things like social engineering, which is really more about understanding people than it is about understanding technology. Uh, lock picking, which is more of a physical thing. Uh, they talk about uh, open source intelligence collection long before that was a, a phrase. This is things about you know, keeping an eye. If you want to surveil or a building because you're on a red team and you want to figure out who works at the building, what hours they keep, how to get in, Things like keeping an eye out for badges that indicate that this person works here and maybe even more than that, that they have a certain level of access. I mean, to, to me, it's, it may seem a little obvious right now, but I remember the first time that I read this step, it was, it was kind of mind-blowing. So it's, it's got a lot of pictures and diagrams, which makes it a quick read, and uh, it's a fairly short book as well, but it's an entertaining one. Okay. So I really enjoyed reading this book. Uh, like does I said, it, I wish I'd read it earlier. Up? Does it hold up with sort of you know, the time gap between when it was written and now. So it's been 10 years, and if they were to, if, if Johnny and the people who contributed to this wanted to make an updated version, they could probably double the length of it. Um, there's a section on Google hacking, and Google hacking was I like was the... Ask, I was gonna ask if they talk, because I mean, that's jo Johnny's famous for is his Google hacking. Yep, right? the Google hacking database was basically his, his brainchild. So there's plenty of, there's a whole section in there, and I found myself taking some notes and thinking, wow, this, I, mean, I wonder if how many of these devices are still out in Google somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, but the whole idea is simply just finding phrases that might show up on a web interface uh, for a device and just putting them to Google, see if they're indexed, see what kind of weird devices you can find. I think if it was written today, and maybe it would have started off with an introduction to Shodan, right. finding devices that way, but which gives you much more of a, a rich data set to work with, and not just things that Google would have indexed. There might be more information in here about you know looking in social media. Again, this is 10 years ago. This is before you know companies like Facebook and Instagram were were big powerhouses. I think it's great. I think if I were in college, maybe maybe even high school, and I wanted to get somebody excited about. You know, you can learn this sort of stuff. You can get into cybersecurity without having to go to an engineering school. I would give them a copy of this book and I'd say, take a look at it. And if this stuff gets you excited, maybe you want to consider a career. But even if you're not going to go into cybersecurity, you should know these following things are possible and these are the steps you can take. There's a section at the end that's how to defend yourself against no-tech hacking, which is the phrase he uses for all the techniques in the book. I would maybe hand that as a pamphlet to most people and say, these are the things you want to know. Things like you leave your building, you take your badge, and you put it in your pocket. The little things that you know, may seem innocuous, but they take two seconds to do, and they can help protect you and your company against these sorts of attacks. That's the thing I would give to most people who are like, intro to maybe I want to learn about cybersecurity, but, or even like intro to computer ethics course. That might be something you'd throw into there. Yeah, because it's kind of like how we always try to, you know, wrap up a, a segment with, you know, how do you protect yourself or what should you take away? You're right, you know, just the takeaways that a new college student or somebody new to this field, you know, it's good to have a section that says, okay, what do you need to do to protect yourself? So, And I think that's, that's really important too, because a lot of it is like, oh my gosh, this is exciting and scary in a way because it's so simple to do some of these things, but it's always good to have a, this is how you would fix it, or this is how you'd at least minimize the risk of some of these techniques. Well, cool. I'm, uh, I'm always impressed that you're able to bring this level of insight to the show. It's really a, it's a treat for our, our viewers, so thanks, well, man. Well, don't, don't believe me. Get a copy at your local <laughs> library. <laughs> 
The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.